This episode of the Flesh Podcast is brought to you by Waltons, Aluma Trailers, Onyx Hunt, and by Nutrisource Pet Foods. My guest today is Dr. Jay Brecky. Jay is a lifelong upland bird hunter and owner of two veterinary clinics in Colorado. Jay specializes in sporting dog care to help bird hunters just like us. We'll dig into a variety of topics that will hopefully help you better understand your hunting dogs and how to care for them. Aluma Trailers, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say Aluma trailers tow gear like a dream, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumakln.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. For everything that gets you outdoors, Aluma Trailers will help you get there. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton, as always, is our producer, Brandon. Big shout out to you for driving all the way down to Omaha last weekend to help us produce our first ever live podcast. Yeah. I heard from quite a few listeners, uh, people that came out, they all enjoyed it. They really liked it. They liked the format. They liked hearing from people. Obviously, I did too. I mean, I, I think it's just cool. One thing is, always, you know, in the back of your mind when you do something like this, is it something that people will be interested in? Right. Do they want to come? Do they want to hang out with us and talk about some of these stories and share them? And I did notice that some people were a little shy. Yeah. And there were a lot of people there that did not come up. And I pried a little bit and I pried and then I pried a a few of them off their chair and they came up. So I just enjoyed, um, I enjoyed the stories and the fact that people were from just really all over the country. Well, that's what surprised me a lot. Like when, you know, yeah, like you said, when you have a live event, you never know what's going to happen. Like you want people say, oh, we'll show up, we'll show up. But you never know until the live event actually happens. And then when I got there to set up, you know, about an hour earlier, so the place was kind of full and I was like, all right, well, we'll see what happens. Maybe they'll start dispersing by the showtime or something like that. Yeah. And most of the people were there to actually see this show. They were there early, yeah. prompt and ready. And um, I don't know, we pretty much filled the place, which was, it was so much fun. It's humbling, man. It really is. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I I enjoyed it. Tyler Webster obviously came over too. I mean, Tyler, he, Tyler, how much fun is he to have on a live show? He's a perfect guy to have there in front of a live audience. Exactly. He really is. I know, exactly. That's exactly what our conversations are like when we're driving in a truck or when we're out hunting. It's just constant heckling. Um, I think I was the butt of almost every joke though. So come on guys and gals, <laughs> take it easy on me. Jeez. Yeah. That was, that was some low hanging fruit there. That wasn't very nice. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I got thick skin. I can handle yeah, it. And yeah, see, I don't know if I could do that if I were you. I just kind of hide my head in shame the entire time, but at least you fought back a little bit. Yeah, no, it was, it was a lot of fun. I think, um, you know, that show and then the whole weekend was really just pretty spectacular. I mean, it's, it's the largest gathering of upland bird hunters in the world. Yeah. That's what hit me, you know, so I, I had to, I had to open up the banquet, you know, as the MC. And I was thinking right before I walked up on stage, I'm like, this is seriously the largest gathering of upland bird hunters in the world. Right. 
And I asked a couple of people at PF that were in charge of the event. And they're like, well, what would be bigger? And I, that's why I said, I don't. It's a so good what, I walked up on stage. I'm like, look at this, you guys. This is the largest gathering in the world. And everyone just like went nuts. And I go, I never even thought of it from that, yeah. that perspective. But yeah, I mean, the banquet wow. hall had 1,500 people roughly. Really? Uh, yeah, they sold out. I mean, there was, I think, just shy of 1,400 seats, but then you have everybody else involved with the event. Right. Um, or 1,400 meals, I think, roughly. Did you get, like, an estimation of how many people showed up over the weekend, over the three-day event, or do those numbers come out uh, eventually? They will. Yeah, they will come out. Uh, Saturday was obviously the large, the That's... biggest day. Sunday was a beautiful day, and I think the numbers would reflect that. Okay. Um, and then they made the announcement, or I, I got to make it on their behalf at the end of the banquet, that it comes to Minneapolis next year. All right. Yeah, the big show. So so I won't get the beautiful scenic drive <laughs> that I got down to Omaha? <laughs> no, but All I right. bet you will get to do another live show. That's because cool. I look forward with, to it with, already. Yeah, with Scott there and, and seeing that the, the place filled up, I'm pretty sure, you know, on the way home, he was already brainstorming where he wanted me to go next and Plotting. what to do. Yes, exactly. And he's going to start doing this like, well, maybe we can do it every couple every month or two. I'm like, oh my gosh, just, you know, calm down a little bit. We got other things to do too, but let's get a bus and go on tour. Let's yes, just do it. Let's just not worry about the television nah. production. Let's just, just, we're traveling we're, full time with live podcasts. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, it, it was, it was a humbling weekend for sure. A lot of people came out, a lot of people brought their kids and I loved that. I love that. Um, Jace, oh, what was Jace's last name? Darn, I don't have it in front of me, but the young man from Nevada, who harvested 42 chucker this year, and he's only eight. 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 Let that sink in for a minute. Let that sink in. If you ever wanted to try it, just know that there's a young man who's already... There's an eight-year-old <laughs> slaying it out there. You have yes. no excuse. Yes, exactly. Uh, um, also, you know, I was really humbled, too, that the stage area on my raising a family in the outdoors... Um, filled up and there were a lot of families there that were interested in getting their kids involved, which is so cool to me. That's really cool. Yep. Yep. I could go on and on, but I'm going to, I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you to everybody that uh, came out to Pheasant Fest and Quill Classic. Thanks for all the support for our entire team. We uh, love it. And it just inspires us to keep doing what we're doing because uh, people are listening, Brandon. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it still blows my mind. Every time. <laughs> I know. I know. All right, let's move on. We've got a great guest today. Uh, uh, Dr. Jay Brecky is, is my guest and Jay, you reached out to us. Oh gosh. A couple months ago. And we talked a couple weeks ago. There's just so many similarities in our lives. Although you are just absolutely full of knowledge. Let's take it back a little bit. You're, um, you live in Colorado, but you grew up hunting in South Dakota. Is that right? Actually, Northwest Kansas. Okay. Gotcha. So, I, yeah, I actually grew, I grew up in kind of South Central Colorado. Went to vet school, Colorado State University up in Northern Colorado. But my family, we've always had ties out in uh, Northwest Kansas. Gotcha. And you have two uh, clinics that are open right now, or are you up to three? Uh, just two. Just opened up uh, our second one about three weeks ago. And okay. then my first one, I started up about seven years ago. And we're just in the South Denver area. Okay. So what made you want to get into uh, into this line of work? <laughs> I was a typical six-year-old kid. Um, luckily, growing up, uh, we had family friends that we hunted with that were the veterinarians in our small town. And that was always 
a good in. And so I started out with the lay family and, um, yeah. So growing up, I worked there at the vet clinic and taking care of dogs and volunteering and, uh, it just never changed my mind. So I rolled right into high school. No one wanted to be a vet. I went right up to Colorado state, wanted to be a vet. And here I am now. Gotcha. And you say that you've, you specialize in sporting dog care, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Gotcha. So well, you, not, you're, you're obviously an upland bird hunter, just like all of our listeners. Yeah. So I was a upland bird hunter long before a, a veterinarian. I started out, oh, I shot my first pheasant. I think I was eight. Um, prior to that, before I could even hold a gun, I was, um, you know, running around the field with my dad and brother and, um, yeah, waterfowl, upland, big game, turkey, um, ever since I was born. And then I was also, uh, part of the Southern Colorado hunting retriever club. And so I, my first dog was actually a yellow lab and got into training for waterfowl and upland birds with her. And now I'm on to, uh, pointers is my new thing now. So I, uh, I really love the German shorthair pointers, kind of my breed. Yeah. They're a beautiful dog. There's, there's a lot of breeds out there. I assume you take care of all of them. I do. Yeah. So in recently, um, God, I got into some of the, uh, the police dogs and some of the working dogs, some of the, uh, um, well, one of my, one of my clients has become a good friend of mine. He's actually going to be, um, doing some demonstrations with me at our sportsman's expo in, in a couple of weeks, but he does, uh, Oh, e-collar training and bite work on some of these Belgian Malois and German sh- uh, shepherds. And so I found that those dogs all kind of get similar injuries to our hunting dogs. And so it's been kind of interesting to work with those dogs. And, uh, um, you know, our division of wildlife here in Colorado and our local county sheriff department, they all have their canine units and uh, are in need of vet care as well. So it's, I've kind of expanded my line of work from hunting dogs from, into you know, pointers, retrievers into now a lot of these, uh, German shepherd and these bite dogs. So it's pretty neat. Very cool. Well, <clears throat> there are just almost too many directions that we could go with this conversation today. Uh, I think what we're going to probably do potentially, if it works for you, I know you've got a busy schedule, you're running two clinics and you're also trying to get out in the field like, like I am. Um, but Maybe we'll see how far we get today. And then throughout the year, we'll just continue to have you on to just really try to help people understand their dogs, how to take care of them, uh, things to look for. Uh, does that sound good to you? Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Okay. So let's, let's start right here. The timing is pretty good because yesterday afternoon, I got an email from a listener and he just was wanted to give me a heads up in case I could share it. And I said, wow, your timing is perfect because I've got a vet on the show tomorrow. So can I read this email to you? And then we'll, we'll dig into it. Okay. Um, his name is Dan Osborne from Spokane, Washington. Uh, let's see. I wanted to pass this along as this was never a risk I thought about as a bird dog owner and that no one I've spoken with was aware of a few days ago. I got back from the pet emergency clinic. Our dog had been there overnight. We had run her the day prior on some state forest land. A few hours later, she had been unable to stand, very erratic, her head moving side to side, dilated pupils. Do you know what, before I continue reading, can you predict what the uh, diagnosis was? 
<laughs> um, I'm throwing you. I'm totally putting you on the spot here. I'll keep reading. I won't do well, that to you. It, w- it wouldn't happen to be. A, it wouldn't happen to be a frog or a toad ingestion, would it? No. The diagnosis was okay. <laughs> THC poisoning. Our conclusion okay. is that she must. Right. <laughs> she must have ate a discarded joint. Heart rate got low enough. She had to stay overnight on an IV. The vet indicated that multiple dogs a week are coming in with this, particularly hard running off leash dogs like ours. So then I I said, do you have any more information? So he followed it up. Well, first he said, the dog is now doing great. Um, It took a few days, but she's back to normal. Um, The vet at the clinic told us they're seeing multiple cases of this a week. We live in Spokane, Spokane, Washington at the moment, city of about 500,000 people, which isn't exactly large, but not small either. Though most of the cases they see are of dogs living in a house with drug use. A surprising number are dogs that just sniffed or smelled or ate something in a park or forest. The vet had said he had this happened to his own dog. The amount of THC it takes for a dog to have serious adverse reaction is quite low, and drug tests are poor with dog sensitivity, so it can be hard to diagnose except for the, set, the telltale symptoms. And then he did, he did more research. He said, after the fact, um, uh, he, the last number of years, there has been a 400% increase in these sort of cases. Unsure exactly on that source, but with Washington, Colorado, Canada, having legalized it, it's becoming a bigger issue, no doubt. It has got me thinking about other poison control sort of issues in the terrain we encounter. The vet mentioned fertilizers, as being an issue to look out for as well. So Jay, have you ever heard of this? Oh yeah. Being a Colorado vet, it's, um, yeah, it's very, very common. So, but pretty, you know, to go out on a run like that and to find just a a random, uh, joint or like that's, that's pretty, um, must've been a pretty popular park or wherever they're at. But, uh, but yeah, we see that a lot, especially with, you know, people that take edibles or, you know, the THC or marijuana products are in, um, you know, a lot of these different forms of brownies or treats or whatever else people take. But, um, yeah, when it's, you know, the pure form that a lot of people take, it can be, it can be pretty scary. Um, luckily, you know, after we hospitalize and take care of a lot of these animals, they, they seem to do fine. Um, and then, you know, even a few years ago, Colorado State University had, or CBD or hemp studies going on. So obviously this is a much different compound compared to actual THC, but um, they're treating seizures and um, arthritis with it. And so, um, so yeah, so there's, there's recreational and then obviously medical use in um, people. Now dogs, Colorado state university a few years ago was doing a study to treat dogs with seizures and epilepsy and then arthritis with CBD products and uh, they kind of had some mixed results, but overall I think that nowadays we see that the Colorado CBD market has really taken off. But I will say that it's a monthly thing that we see marijuana intoxication at our clinics. Um, But usually it's, we know that they got into it. Owners are, um, they're very straightforward and upfront with it. Um, Before it was even legalized, it was definitely a guessing game. Um, but nowadays they can come in and just tell you what happened. And so we kind of know exactly what to do, what to treat. But if you're out and about not expecting that, and you can see that in a dog, that is pretty scary. Cause I mean, a lot of things can present like that. So, um, no, that's an interesting story for sure. Huh. So if somebody has that or a different reaction to 
uh, a poison, <clears throat> what are the first signs and what should people do? Yeah, so the first thing you notice is they just kind of lose a lot of coordination. Um, they just seem very, very lethargic. And yeah, their 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 pupils do get dilated. So they'll be looking at you like the, like you're a ghost. It's kind of funny. And then the ones I've seen, they always have incontinence, like urinary incontinence. Like they just are peeing themselves and they're dribbling pee. They just cannot control it. That's something I, I see and I can notice right away. So that's kind of my telltale sign. Um, sometimes they vomit. Um, and then every once in a while, they'll, they'll seem kind of agitated. They'll be pacing around, seem kind of just very restless. And then uh, they seem like they always kind of have uh, shaking and, and almost like tremors. And so um, those are kind of the, the biggest things that you'll, you'll see. But if you see, I'd say for, for most of our dog owners, if you see dilated pupils and um, a dull behavior and they're leaking urine, then that's a, that's a slam dunk in my opinion. So for, for THC. So then the next step is to get them to a vet right away. It is. Yeah. Now some low doses can be self-limiting where dogs can just process, they get it through themselves. Everything's fine, but I don't, I don't recommend taking that chance, especially if you don't know if there was, you know, chocolate involved, um, xylitol, which is the, um, the sweetener that can cause dogs to be severely hypoglycemic where their blood sugar completely drops, which then can lead to to uh, seizures as well. And so you have to remember a lot of these marijuana products, yeah, it has THC, but it also could be correlated with, you know, a toxic dose of, of chocolate or sweetener. And that, that's actually uh, more of a complication than the THC itself. And so, yeah, get to the vet regardless so that they can run some in-house labs and just basically just monitor it and, and treat whatever, you know, if the heart rate is, low they can they can we can treat that they can you know kind of dilute the animal with iv fluids and hook them up to some different monitoring to watch the heart and just just get them to professionals what i recommend for sure so gotcha well i wasn't really planning on going to this going this direction off the top but i i found that in, <laughs> that email interesting so i thought let's just let's just answer that one right away um and now of course i have 20 follow-up questions i i let so. Um, yeah, I'm going to ask a couple follow-up questions to that in regards to seizures in the field. I have been on hunts multiple times where a dog that middle of the hunt just lays down in a seizure, starts shaking. What causes that? How do you, how common is it? How to, how do you be prepared for that and what to do with the dog? Yeah. So, um, well, so first off, you have to determine if this is the dog's, you know, first seizure or are they diagnosed with uh, what we call idiopathic epilepsy, which is where um, genetically they just kind of have seizures at random times. But if I think one thing to keep in mind, this is kind of backtracking a little bit, is if you have a Labrador retriever, you have to remember and you have to research on what's called EIC, which is exercise-induced collapse. Um, University of Minnesota actually has the genetic and DNA testing for that specific gene. Exercise-induced collapse is basically a gene malfunction in certain breeds or lines of Labrador retrievers where when they hit a capacity of exercise and you know, physical activity, they'll collapse and they'll act or seem like they're in a seizure-like state. Um, and that, that, that can be pretty scary. Now, luckily, it's not really fatal, but it definitely can 
can and can make you pretty worried. And so, exercise induced collapse is something that usually these hunters see out in the field. Um, and I actually remember first reading about it when I was like in middle school in one of the, my dad's Pheasant Forever magazines when they first kind of discovered it. And so you have that. And then, you know, being a German short hair pointer guy, um, fortunately, idiopathic, well, or seizures in general are, are common in, in pointers. And um, I mean, I know I have a few clients right now with German short hair pointers and they're middle-aged and they have, they have seizures, which is pretty rough. But if you see that in the field, you have different classifications of seizures. Um, you know, you have clusters, you have grand mal. And so regardless, um, most of these are going to be self-limiting where the dog can then kind of snap out of it after a, uh, after a few minutes. But one of the neurologists I work with, he says, if your dog has seizures that last more than five minutes, or if there's more than two in one month, you need to get, you know, we have to do some diagnostics and work up. But if you're out in the field and you see that, for the most part, you're going to see it. It's going to seem like 10 minutes to you, but it really all, probably is only 30 seconds to a minute. They'll come out of it. They'll come around, get them to the truck, get them watered down, let them relax, and probably end it for the day. You probably need to end your hunt and uh, get back to your vet for a, a seizure workup. And if you have a lab, check your pedigree. If it's not tested on there, like you know, you have your eyes, you have your hips, you have your elbows, now the new thing is EIC testing. And so make sure that that is um, negative amongst the parents. But if it's not, go to your vet. Um, we can send off um, blood salivary samples to Minnesota that can check for that. Um, but, yeah, the biggest thing is is to um, kind of yeah end your day and get to a vet. Now, if it's a seizure that doesn't stop, then that's where, um, you know, they're biting down and they're salivating, they're laying on their side, they're defecating, urinating, they're completely out of it. And, if you're into five, ten minutes of that not stopping, then you better get to a vet as fast as you can so they, they can give uh, IV medications to snap them out of it. So well, speaking of that, one thing that kind of helps is, you know, they'll, they'll be biting down, they'll chew on their tongue and everything. Is always keep about a eight-inch piece of uh, garden hose in your truck. And so if they're having a seizure, you can put that in their mouth so they're biting down on that rather than their tongue or their teeth or your hand. And so... Um, that's going to be pretty rare if you're going to see that, especially for the first time. But if you do, you need to you need to get to a get to a vet. Now, if it's drugs or toxins or anything like that, and you know that they ingested something, or if you're not sure, yeah, again, get to a vet so they can run some diagnostics and some labs to see what's going on. A couple of people that I've hunted with that have their dogs <clears throat> have had these seizures. They carry, um, I believe it's Gatorade and some other high energy snacks because they want to get their dog full of nutrients that'll hopefully help. Is that a smart move? Uh, it, it is. If um, the cause of the seizures is low blood sugar, I think that's kind of what they're targeting or, or just electrolyte abnormalities. But um, yeah, I mean all that, I feel like a lot of that stuff helps because if you look at, you know, potassium chloride, sodium, those are all electrolytes that can affect a lot of the neurologic system. And so, um, you know, I think re regardless, I'm a big fan of Gatorade for a lot of dogs, um, especially if you kind of dilute it or mix it. I think it's beneficial. I don't, I've never seen any reactions. Um, I mean, put it this way, whenever I see a, a puppy with parvo, which, you know, they're, they're completely dehydrated with vomiting diarrhea, um, I always give them some Gatorade for electrolytes, and they seem like they do pretty well from it. And so, yeah, keeping these dogs, you know, 
hydrated electrolytes. Um, a lot of, there's a lot of different supplement companies out there too that have electrolyte, um, kind of these, almost like these athlete packs that have different types of sugars or, or um, dog proteins that come in a little liquid pouch or whatever. Those are, those are all beneficial. So I don't know how much research has really been proven on all that, but it won't hurt anything. So why not? And when you give them that, it I th- I feel like you know with food too, people think oh, I'll give them some food and the energy's right now. But it takes quite a while to process that food in their body, doesn't it? To actually get the energy that you're trying to give them. I mean, what is an average or how long does it take for them to digest the food and actually have it go into their system to where it becomes usable energy for them? Oh wow! It, yeah, it can be up to. I mean. There's, there's some stuff that gets absorbed in the stomach right away, obviously, like water, certain electrolytes. Um, but in general, I mean, I think that um, a lot of times they say that it's up to, you know, 8 to 12 hours for a lot of these dogs to really kind of eat and digest kind of, you know, what they, what they have. I mean, for example, yesterday I saw a dog that um, it had its breakfast at 7, and then it ate a sock <laughs> and came in. Uh, around one or two, took x-rays. I could see the sock in the stomach. I induced, vo- induced vomiting, and that dog threw up a bright pink sock, and its entire breakfast, still in kibble form, uh, six, seven hours later. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of times these, these dogs are eight, 12 hours plus with, with digestion. Um, and I've heard other vets say different studies and different things, and um, – you know, how long it really takes. But from what I found, it's, it's actually pretty slow compared to people. Yeah. So when people say, well, it's important to give your dog a little bit of breakfast before a big day of hunting, um, because they want that energy, but then you get the other crowd of people that say, I'm not going to feed my dog before a hunt because I don't want twisted stomach to become an issue. Uh, where do you, what would you recommend for people on that? Does it does it vary by breed and how active they are and how much uh, they run? Yeah, it does. Um, so, yeah, great question. So um, the I believe every dog needs a little bit of nutrients in the morning. Now, you're going to get those some, some of those dogs that they wake up in the morning and they don't even care about food. They're ready to go hunting, um, especially some of, the, some of the male dogs. They just are ready to go. But I do think that um, – you know, some, like I always feed my dog half her, half her food in the morning. Um, and you know, she's a German short hair. And so I, it, it's a, it's a big debate on what to do. Cause here, here's what the misconception is with the stomach twisting. And, um, but don't get me wrong. If you have a big deep te- chested dog, like you got a, you know, German short hair has a big barrel chest or you got a big hundred pound lab that has a big barrel chest. There's a lot of room for that stomach to, basically just kind of become a big pendulous bag full of food and water and boom, it goes and twists. But the, um, one of the misconceptions is too, is that you have to remember that the stomach is attached to the spleen and the spleen is a giant organ in these dogs. I mean, it's some of these big labs I think can be as big as a beaver tail and that spleen contracts and relaxes all day long with stress, excitement. And because it's attached to, uh, the stomach, if the spleen goes and the stomach goes. And so what's interesting is that we'll see dogs that have what we call GDV, which is the stomach twist that have no association with food at all. And I remember specifically in vet school, um, 
on some of these sur- surgery rotations or departments where we would talk about that. And the surgeons were real adamant about getting away from the whole idea of um, the food concept. Um, that it's, yes, it's, it's contributes, but you have to remember too that if the dog has a deep chest and if they're stressful or they're excited, that if that spleen goes, the whole stomach goes. And so, um, it's now to, to, to go off of that. I, I feel that, yeah, you don't want to feed your dog, you know, a giant meal that has a big stomach or a, sorry, a big deep chest and you're going to go out hunting and then afterwards it's going to be rolling around and doing all stuff. Cause I think that, you know, it all contributes, but, um, the, the, uh, the, um, the chance for that, that spleen to go is pretty high. And here's a little example. Uh, two months ago, uh, had a, a police dog that we, 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 we actually tacked his stomach down. And so, so when he was about a year old, we went in and we actually, it was called a prophylactic gastropexy where we actually took his stomach and actually you can make an incision in the stomach and suture it to basically a rib and you create this big scar tissue so that that stomach will never twist, hopefully. Because German Shepherds are real, real common for that. And, um, and believe it or not, uh, just two months ago, that dog went into the ER clinic for, for bloat. And what they found when they went in there for surgery was the stomach was intact, didn't move. But that spleen completely did a 180 on itself and caused a big torsion. And so that's right there is kind of the point I'm making where um, – that dog they thought was a was a bloat, but it wasn't. The spleen was still going to do its thing, and so, um, you know, that's that's kind of uh, uh, something I like to address because so many people get kind of lost in the whole um, feeding concept. But um, I think it's multifactorial. You have to be careful in, in in general. But if you have a big deep chested dog and your vet can do these surgeries, I highly recommend it because it's got a very good. Um, success rate to where it'll it'll hopefully never never twist on it and um but yeah i mean if, if food takes eight to ten hours to, or 12 to digest and um you know you're gonna go for a long day in the field then absolutely you know feed your dog a you know half or a quarter in the morning and then when they get home at night feed them their normal amount let them rest you know during the day you can give them some snacks if you want um you know if at lunchtime you're going to be eating a sandwich and you want to give them some you know, some dog treats or just a quarter of their food, feel free. Cause I think that they need that, they need that energy to, to keep going and, and, um, you know, keep hunting. If, if you were going to give a dog a treat during the middle of the day, what would be the best treat that you could give them most beneficial? Yeah. Personally, I like to just give them their normal dog food. I always just keep, keep it in the dog trailer. And, um, I like to give that, uh, give that to them cause if they're used to getting milk bones or some other treats that you can buy, something that's really not too too rich because you're just going to get diarrhea, you can um, you can give that at lunch to them. But if you know if you don't have, if if you have a buddy that says, oh here, give him give this dog your you know my dog takes these every day. You know, let's see if your dog likes it. And your dog's never seen that before. Then you're you're going to be in for a hurting of probably vomiting <laughs> and diarrhea, especially with miles and miles of hunting. So. Um, I would just keep it clean, keep it consistent, and uh, just give them uh, th- their own food to keep it safe. So unless you have a dog that can, you know, has a stomach of steel and has no issues with that, then, yeah, feel free to, you know, give them some type of uh, 
dog treat milk bone at, at lunchtime. That's perfectly fine. So, gotcha. Uh, just to kind of wrap up this this um, twisted stomach food conversation, um, <clears throat> what do you, what's your general rule about for your own dogs? I guess on when you're going to hunt. Let's say you're going to hunt at 10 a.m. What what's your cutoff on when you would feed your dog? Yeah. So um, yeah. So usually, yeah, we usually do hunt around nine ten when we're in Kansas, and uh, we usually feed them around. Oh, 6.30 to 7.30. And so we usually give them a good hour or two before we do that. Um, and personally, if I um, if I don't have the timing just right, uh, I um, if my dog will eat, um, I'll, then I'll just give her a very small amount, like a quarter of a amount if it's like within 30 minutes to an hour. And then, then I know I'll just feed her normal at night. And she doesn't seem to care, and she's just ready to hunt. And so... But if you're going to feed, you know, a larger meal an hour or two before, that's where I'd, you know, err on the side of caution just for the chance that the stomach's going to get, you know, enlarged and they're going to be digesting all that food. Because you have to remember, if they eat a big meal, there's going to be a lot of blood supply that goes for the digestive tract rather than the the muscles the muscle tract. And so we want to make sure that we focus the blood supply where we need it. And so... Um, yeah, make sure you time it up. You know, if you know you're going to hunt, um, you know, it's certain, like what uh, you probably know better than me, but in North Dakota, you can't, you, you don't you hunt at like 10 or something or certain places that you can't hunt until South Dakota's certain, 10, South Dakota's yeah. 10 o'clock and then North Dakota's sunrise, <clears throat> Montana, okay. half hour before sunrise, Minnesota's nine o'clock. It, okay. it so, yeah, so, yeah. So if you know you're going to be doing that, then you just need to wake up and feed your dog at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> So. And and personally, you know, with my dog, uh, with my dog, she just has this motor to go. Like she'll go forty miles and won't skip a beat. Literally, she'll run forty miles, and you look at her after forty miles, and she's like, "Let's go, guys! I'm waiting on you." You know, she's n- not real. I mean, she'll slow down a little bit, but um, she's not missing much of a beat. So I feel like if I'm gonna risk it. Um, I haven't been, and I would say I'm just going to make sure that after the hunt, she gets all of her nutrition, uh, because I, I guess it's just been something I've been nervous about. Yeah, no, exactly. And so, I mean, if you wake up in the morning and it doesn't seem right based on when to go and when you're going to be hunting all this stuff, I mean, you can just pass on feeding them if you want. So there's nothing wrong with that. Some might say they're, oh, they're not getting their energy, they're not, but from experience, you know, these dogs will go forever. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. If they, so, if they know there's a bird out yeah. there, they're not going to stop. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Nutrisource Pet Foods just launched a new product that can give our active hunting dogs a big boost when they need it most. It's called Kampucha. Nutrisource Kampucha, inspired, of course, by kombucha, is a savory, meaty bone broth topper that's packed with activated postbiotics from a fermentation product that thrives in the gut to promote a healthy gut ecosystem for digestion support. That's a mouthful. But what it means for us bird dog owners is that we now have a healthy topper to pour over our dog's food if they're ever stressed or won't eat while on a long hunting trip. Kampucha is offered in three flavors, turkey, beef, and chicken, and comes in a 12-ounce pouch. Nutrisource high-performance dog foods provide exceptional 
healthy nutrition for active dogs of every breed, just like my dog, Daisy. Now they have a topper that gives our four-legged hunters another edge when they need it the most. Check out their full lineup of dog foods at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. There are a few places that you can buy products to process and prepare your meat. There are not a lot of places that you can buy those products and learn how to use them from experts. Walton's is that place. They have everything, and I mean everything, for your cooking and wild game processing needs. Plus, they have experts on staff to help you learn how to use those products to get the best results. John Tremblay hosts their Meatgistics podcast, live stream, and chats, which are interactive learning tools for the meat processing community. If you have questions, John and his team have the answers. From sausage making to smoking, recipes to seasonings, and so much more. Walton's products ship the same day you order. They have over 5,000 items in stock. From grinders, mixers, stuffers, slicers, smokers, vacuum sealers, and anything else you can imagine. Order the same seasonings and supplies that professionals use from the best name in the wild game processing industry. Walton's. They have everything but the meat. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I've been talking about the Onyx Hunt app since we started producing this show, and that's simply because I use it on every single hunt. Their app tells me everything that I need to know about the lands that I want to hunt and the lands that I can legally hunt on. The Onyx Hunt app shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. It also tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state land, federal lands, walk-in access properties, etc. The app also has new features this year that show you the kind of crops that are in fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. If you hunt grouse in the north woods, there's a timber cut layer to help you find ideal habitat. If you're planning to hunt North Dakota this year, then there's a very important layer that has been added to the app that lets you know if a property has been posted electronically. These are just a few of the tools Onyx Maps give us. And these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage. From the palm of your hand, Onyx Maps always help you to know where you stand. Let's kind of bring this conversation back to where I think I wanted to start it because I think a lot has changed in the last couple of years. In your world, how has veterinary care changed since COVID kicked in or since COVID oh, started? Yeah, it's uh, it's taken a complete 180. Well, first off in the well, in Colorado or, or the Denver area, we've, uh, we've seen just a huge influx of of new adoptions and, um, and, and puppies, new probably. puppies. Yeah. Yeah. The I year mean, of the puppy um, was 2020. Yep. And so that was the busiest I've ever been. Um, and it's, it's interesting because not only did we get extra busy <laughs> and now all of a sudden, um, I don't know how it is in Minnesota, but, and well, right now we're having quite the staffing crisis here and, um, United States, especially Colorado. And so veterinarians and their supporting staff, the nurses and assistants are in, they're not around, they're in high demand. And so um, we have an uh, exponential amount of new clients and new puppies and less staff and less vets. And so um, this is the, this is the business I've ever been in nine years of practicing. I mean, I'm two, three months booked out on, spays and neuters and man i can do 15 20 a week and try to see appointments um, surgeries in general were so booked out over a month booked out on just regular vaccines and that, that's very unusual 
Um, I used to be the kind of vet where you call, you come right in, we get it done. And now it's this, you kind of have to plan it a lot more to, um, you know, uh, <laughs> not kill your staff. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, but also take care of your clients. And so that's why I really tell a lot of clients, especially the, a lot of our upland and bird dog clients is that if you know that you're going to go hunting in October, call in June, July to get your August, September vet checkup. And, and if you need any procedures done, make sure you plan in advance and, um, just make sure you're prepared because I think the biggest change we've seen is, um, more clients, more dogs, less staff. And that is, that's tough. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate. I didn't do this on purpose, but we're not open on weekends and every single one of our vets and staff members gets a three day weekend, depending on if it's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And so, um, I've had a luck. I've luckily had a big influx of people coming to work for me because they don't have to, they get three day weekends and, I strictly just did that because that was my schedule. Um, well, you're hunting on but, Saturday and Sunday. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and so, yeah, but, um, so my advice to anybody out there is make sure you just find a, find a vet that you, that you trust that's available, that has a good team. Um, and if you like your vet, make sure they also have a good supportive team that they're available for you when you need it. And, um, and just be flexible with them. You know, if you call and your vets completely booked up, but they say, Hey, um, if you come and, drop off or you hang out for an hour, I'm going to get to you, but just don't expect immediate service, but I'm going to get you done today. You know, if you work from home or take your computer, sit in the lobby, sit in your car, but just, just kind of work with them is what my recommendation is because we're doing the best we can. It's, um, it's crazy. It's good. It's good business, but it's, um, yeah, everybody's, everybody's, uh, kind of maxed out right now, at least in the South Denver area. Well, I learned immediately once I got Daisy, just how important finding a good vet is somebody that you trust, somebody you can call, somebody that um, understands your dog. Because my dog, uh, a hunting dog, very well trained. Well, I think she's well trained until <laughs> she smells a pheasant. But, um, you know, around the house, she's just an angel. I can do anything I want with her at any time. I can touch any part of her body. I can, I've, I've stitched her myself, um, but there are dogs out there that you wouldn't be able to touch, right? So having a vet that understands your dog is important, but not everybody can find that. I mean, what do you recommend for somebody that gets a, that has a hunting dog? What, what questions should they ask a veterinarian when they're looking for a vet to take care of them? Yeah. I just ask if they've ever had any experience or have other clients that are, um, that have worked with, with hunting dogs or sporting dogs. And, uh, if you go to a clinic that has multiple veterinarians, they might say, oh, yeah, you can go to Dr. So-and-so because uh, their brother hunts or does this or that. Or I mean, that's, that's kind of if you go to a clinic, I mean, you're going to find hopefully a vet that will or can, um, you know, relate to you. And if, if not, I mean, then, yeah, I think if you're in an area, I mean, and there's a, a hunting vet that's within 30 minutes to an hour, I definitely think it's worth going to them. Now, as far as, you know, immediate care, you just need to make sure you find an emergency center, or another 24 hour facility that can help you immediately. But for all your other concerns, if you have a vet that's, you know, a little bit of a drive, I think it's worth it. Um, and just cause they, they just understand you. And the, and the benefit of that too is, you know, before the hunting season, like I give a lot of my clients, you know, we, I give them a whole kit of bandage materials, uh, doggy staplers, wound cleaning stuff. We stock them up with uh, anti-inflammatories and just the whole nine yards so that they're, 
they're prepared and we kind of restock their, their truck or their vest. And so, um, yeah, just finding a vet that either can relate or know someone that hunts or hunts themselves or, uh, you know, or they just say, Hey, I don't hunt, but this is your goal. This is what you need. I can accommodate that. Then there you go. Cause I think you mentioned one time that you had a dog where I think it was, was it Daisy that, um, they had, they sedated her when she could probably do everything until her awake. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was out yeah. of town. My wife took her into the, to the vet and <clears throat> she came back, you know, with, uh, <laughs> I, I, like it was the most major surgery ever. And it was just a, a simple stitch on her paw or on her leg. And she was out of it for, I want to say close to a week. She wasn't herself, wasn't eating. And it, it was all the drugs that they put in her. And I'm thinking, they didn't need to do really anything at all. They could have just stitched her up and she would have been just fine. And so, yeah, I mean, it, I guess that's, that's part of, you know, before an accident happens, really understanding your vet and them understanding you and your situation probably. Right. Oh yeah. hundred percent. So yeah. Cause I mean, as a veterinarian, I, I try to, I mean, if I have a dog that will just stand there, that's wonderful. Cause sedating is, I mean, A, it adds extra cost. B, it, you have to, you know, have to watch them for an hour. Their heart rate drops during the procedure. I mean, it's kind of a headache. And so if I get a dog like, like, like Daisy, oh, that's the best thing. So you can just do a little local block with lidocaine to numb it up and put some stitches in and then they can go home and everything's great. So, but the, there, yeah, there are some dogs that, I mean, they, uh, you try to do anything to them when they're awake, they'll try to bite your head off. And so sedation is as an absolute, but usually the owners know that too. And so, um, yeah, find an event, you know, if you have a dog that, um, it's pretty easy to go and make sure you, you know, work with a vet that just kind of understands that, um, kind of your goals and what you're looking for. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, a it's kind of that's that kind of, um, hunting or, or, or your goals, it's going to be challenging. It's going to continue to be more challenging because, um, I mean, heck, even here in the Denver area, I mean, there's a lot of people that are upland hunters and, um, they're, they're wonderful people to drive from a long way to come see me. And, you know, we're two, three hours from some pheasant hunting in, uh, Eastern Colorado. We're uh, five, six hours from Nebraska, Kansas. Um, I mean, heck even Wyoming too. And so, a lot of hunters live in the, the Denver suburbs that um, just not finding the, the vet that they are looking for. But, um, yeah, I mean, my, my biggest message is just do your research. Look yep. around. So, Well, in Brecky Vet, B-R-E-K-K-E-V-E-T.com, that's your site where they can learn more. On, it is, yeah. So you listened to that podcast. Did you listen to the one when we were out in the Fort Pier grasslands and, and the gentleman that I was hunting with, Josh Bathke, his dog got struck by a rattlesnake? Uh, I did not know. I okay. listened to that one yet. So it's an interesting, it yeah, it's, this is, oh gosh, a year and a half ago. It's an interesting topic and I didn't know if we were going to get into it today, but since you kind of brought up that, that story, I figured let's, let's dig into this one too. So here's what happened. We're out in the grasslands. His dogs were vaccinated, <clears throat> but the dog got struck in the face by a rattlesnake, and he had um, he had Benadryl with, so he instantly gave the dog Benadryl, and then we went to the vet in uh, Pier, or he went to the vet, and this, of course, was 
you know, when COVID first started. So he could not go in, drop the dog off. She, I don't know if she scolded him, but basically like really scared him uh, because he uh, gave the dog Benadryl and she said not to do that. She pumped his dog's stomach to take that Benadryl out and then proceeded to care for the dog. And we, I had an overwhelming amount of people reach out saying, I've been told my whole life, give the dog Benadryl in that situation. I carry Benadryl if I'm in snake country for that exact situation. And now a vet is saying not to do that. Um, I guess I'm putting you on the spot here, but what's your take on that? Yeah. So, um, that, yeah, rattlesnake bites are, 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 I feel like medicine's changed quite a bit. I mean, in the old days, they used to be, there used to be a lot of discussion and, uh, and kind of uh, theories on even using like a like a steroid, like a like a dexamethasone or prednisone for inflammation. They've kind of gotten away from that. Um, I personally am a fan of uh, Benadryl just because, um, well, in rattlesnakes, just because I do think it helps with some of the anaphylactic reaction. But there are also some vets and some articles that they want to stay away from that. Um, I don't really know the reason the reason why, but I, I, I do say that, you know, if you go to the extent of, of you know, pumping a dog's stomach is, uh, I think, kind of unnecessary. But, um, you know, the biggest thing is if if your vet carries the anti-venom or you can get somewhere like that or, uh, you know, IV fluids, antibiotics um, is, is, is kind of the biggest thing. Now, it, it's also bite dependent. You know, if you get a dog that gets bit on the back leg compared to the nose, completely different outcomes. Um, How so? Just with uh, airway. Um, so if a dog gets bit on the nose and they get a lot of swelling, um, you know, and they can't breathe, and then that, that's more of a lifelong emergency um, uh, compared to the back leg where if it doesn't really hit a blood vessel and you just get more soft tissue, then those dogs usually have a lot more time to to kind of, um, until they can get to a vet. Cause I mean, it's, it's, it's just crazy. Cause I mean, one of the guys that I hunt sharp tail grouse with, he's, a, um, <laughs> he's actually a, a human MD and, uh, we were sharp tail grouse hunting, uh, last year up in, in Wyoming. And he, I, I, I pull up and I have my, my truck and I, I completely have like antivenom in a freezer. <laughs> I have, uh, a drip system, fluid pumps. I mean, I have everything on my truck and I can, I can plug in any type of, I mean, I was ready. I had a, a mobile vet clinic cause I, I just have seen too many rattlesnake bites. And, um, and he was telling me about, uh, the previous year he was sage grouse hunting in Wyoming and he had a big German short hair pointer that he saw get bit in the, in the chest and the sternum. And he said, he just watched the dog and it did fine. And he never, never did anything. And then two weeks later, he finally went to the vet. <laughs> Whoa. And, uh, and so the moral of that story is that when the dog gets bit, they're going to tell you what's going to, they're, they're going to tell you how, what kind of reaction they're going to have within the first 15, 30 minutes. And so for his dog, didn't have much of a reaction. He finally went in a couple weeks later because the swelling didn't go away and it was probably infected. Dog's doing fine. But, um, if, if they're going to get smacked by a rattlesnake, you'll know right away how urgent it is and, and what to do. And so if your dog can take Benadryl, great. 
And if you can ice the wound, icing helps tremendously. And these things are really, really painful. Um, but I always tell everyone to to get to a vet right away because who knows what else it does to the body as far as, you know, the heart, blood pressure, um, I mean, you name it. And so, um, yeah, rattlesnakes are, they're unpredictable. So every, every dog has their own unique reaction to them. And, um, and I can tell you right now, when dogs come into me, I, I see rattlesnakes every summer, rattlesnake bites. And, um, and immediately we put them on a, uh, pretty heavy pain medications, IV fluids, IV antibiotics. We ice everything. We give them two doses of antivenom. Um, sometimes I will give them some IV Benadryl and they pull through just fine. Um, it's, uh, it's rewarding. So, and then you have the rattlesnake vaccine out there. Do you guys, are, do you guys have that? Have you heard of the rattlesnake vaccine at all? I heard, I, yes, I have, but being in Minnesota, we don't have any vets around here that would carry it. So it's one of yeah. those things where I got to know somebody that knows somebody to get it if I'm going to go West. And, um, it's not, it's not one of those easy things to get. Yeah, no, and it's it's interesting because you know the the rattlesnake vaccine is made off the western diamondback, and of course you know here in Denver, eastern Colorado, Kansas, we have the prairie rattlesnake, and so it's completely different snakes. But we do think there's a crossover from the vaccine to other types of pit vipers, basically. Uh, but I the, the vets that I know out in Kansas, they don't even do the vaccine. They think it's worse or worthless. I got a good buddy that's a vet down in Flagstaff, Arizona. He thinks it's worthless, but I'll tell you. Um, I've, I've seen the vaccine. I think it buys dogs a lot of time. Um, I think it's a vaccine that every hunting dog should have. Um, cause I, th- um, it does have some side effects. I, you, you, I would say one out of 20 dogs, after you give the vaccine, they'll get like a little abscess wherever you give it. I give it in the right shoulder. And so if you are going to do it, just be prepared for that. Believe it or not, we treat that. What I do now is I have my owners give Benadryl five days before their vaccine appointment and five days after, and all those abscesses are gone now. And so, uh, learn that from another, another veterinarian. And so the rattlesnake vaccine is vet dependent on if they like it. Me personally, I think I've seen a lot of dogs where it bought them two, three, four extra hours to get to a veterinarian and get better care. And so I'm, I'm a believer in it. And then obviously the biggest thing is these rattlesnake avoidance training, um, that I, you just can't beat the rattlesnake guys that, you know, are from New Mexico, South Texas, where they come up with these rattlesnakes and they either have them in these plexiglass cages or they de-venomize them. And they basically will e-collar train your dog to be deathly afraid of the sound and the smell of rattlesnakes. You can't beat that. That's the best thing, but that's, that's a tough service to find these days. I mean, I try to get, I try to get some of these rattlesnakes to drive up here in Colorado to do these demonstrations and they're deathly afraid of bringing snakes into the Colorado border based on our laws. And so it's just like, Oh geez, how are we going to do this? And so, um, if you can find anybody that does rattlesnake avoidance training, and if you're in the, in a hot spot like California, Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, I, I definitely think those classes are worth it, worth it because, um, you know, you get a, a rookie dog that doesn't know what a rattlesnake is and then they're out hunting. They're going to go nose first into it and you're in, you're in yep. for a hurt. Yep. Uh, the last question, cause we we're flying already on time, but, um, what percentage of rattlesnake bites are lethal in your career? Have you seen, or would you guess? Uh, pretty small. Um, okay. and then the reason why is just the access to vets in the emergency center. But I think out of 
Oh, well, my first job down it's kind of South Central Colorado. We saw rattlesnake bites all the time, and I would save. Um, I would say I've only seen maybe one or two that have been fatal out of probably 100 or 200, okay. so pretty low. You mentioned uh, about sending your uh, your clients away with first aid kits and, and things that they can use out in the field. Um, I was thinking, you know, maybe we'd wait until later this summer to do a show just about in the field first aid for your dogs, but you made a very important comment before we started recording that you know, there's not really an off season for a lot of us. The dogs that are out training right now are just as likely to get injured as if we were in a real hunting scenario. So what would you say is the most important or are the most important tools that you want to take into the field with you that you carry with you and that you have in your truck? Yeah. Um, so the biggest thing for like your, your, your pack or what you're going to carry with you on these hunts, uh, I'm a big fan of skin staplers. Um, you can get them from your veterinarian. You can get them online um, that's kind of a good way when you get a real clean laceration from a barbed wire fence or whatever, you can staple those and tack them down. And then, so that way you can get to your vet where they can assess and, and, and do probably a better job as far as cleaning it and making sure that everything comes together nice. But so skin staplers, number one, having Benadryl, um, in your pack, um, or in your truck is good. All different types of bandage materials is another thing you want to be able to have, uh, Soft bandage, uh, what's called vet wrap, which is your kind of your typical that you can see at Cabela's, which is like the colored bandage that's really stretchy. Um, you want to make sure you have a good uh, Leatherman or pocket knife, um, pliers in case you run into porcupines. Um, so what you carry around, I think, is the biggest thing is a stapler and a lot of bandage material so you can get back to your truck. Once you're at your truck, that's where hopefully you can have some some saline flush to clean wounds or clean eyes. Um, there you can have maybe more um, medications such as, uh, you know, anti-inflammatories or other meds that your, your vet gave you for any type of pain or, or injuries. Uh, and then just restocked, um, uh, restocked uh, larger amounts of bandage material or, um, or um, booties or whatever else that you can do to kind of, put it on the animal until you can get to a vet, but it just depends. Cause I mean, if you're, you know, if you're in Kansas or, you know, hunting some of these section long lands, you know, mile by mile, I mean, you're, you're so close to the truck that do you really need something in your day pack? Maybe, but if you're right in the middle of a field where you get a barbed wire fence cut and you can do a couple staples to get to the truck, put a bandage on, clean it up, then get to a vet. That's ideal. And so, you don't need much. Um, I think a lot of that is is the staplers big, and then a lot of different bandage material to get it wrapped to, to keep the animal from licking at it, chewing at it, and just uh, and just get to a vet within a appropriate amount of time. When you you mentioned the anti-inflammatory medication, does that expire? It does. And so, like for example, we always know about Rimadil. We hear about Rimadil, which is carprofen. Rimadil, it's it's flavored, and so. Um, I feel like those flavorings are what can go bad. Like they're, they're a chew. And so that's why every year, like if you just go into your vet and say, Hey, you know, hunting season's coming up, you know, can I get, you know, Oh, a few, few tablets or, you know, handful of tablets just to have for this year. And then if it's next year, you just toss it, go in for your pre vet tune up for the year and get an, get another, uh, another prescription. I think is kind of what I do with my clients. It works well. Gotcha. So I've stitched my dog. Do you recommend 
if somebody's confident, if they've watched a vet do it, you know, do you recommend somebody give it a try or do you just say, well, it's probably best not to just because there's some infections and things that could happen? Or do you say, yeah, it's, it's good to be prepared. It's good to know how to do those types of things. And I recommend people should um, study up because it could be a lifesaver. Yeah. I'm, I tell people to, uh, to do it. Um, from what I found, they're in places where it's, you know, they're quite a ways from a vet or the vet that they want to go to. And so, um, yeah, especially with, you know, staples or just some mild stitches, I think it at least can put the, put the, the skin back in the, in the general area until you can get to a vet. And, um, I think then, I mean, I've seen some cases where people come in, I'm like, wow, you did a great job. I don't need to do anything. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, other times where it's like, Hey, this is okay. Let me just kind of clean it up a little bit. I'm going to numb it up and just touch it up a little bit. We're going to start some antibiotics, but, um, I think it, I think what you did was, was great. Um, I do know there's some vets that completely disagree with that. I remember when I was at the, the sportsman's expo three years ago, uh, uh, owner came up to me and said, Oh, I'm Wyoming. And I stapled my dog. I took it into the vet and the vet just, uh, laid into him about don't do that. How wrong it is how you can nick these, you can hit blood vessels and do all this kind of damage. And I just, I don't believe that. I mean, these staples, they're nothing. I mean, you can staple your own arm and it just feels like a little mosquito bite. And uh-huh. so if you're worried about, you know, lacerating or cutting a giant blood vessel on a, on a dog's arm or leg, I mean, with a tiny little stapler like that, uh, you, that, that, I find that hard to believe, but. Um, now, now so, if you so go into it with yeah. like a, a roofing stapler where you're hammering it in, maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe you've got to be a little yeah. more careful. But yeah, I agree with you. I feel like it's important to know this kind of stuff beforehand. And I never know enough, which is why I'm fascinated by all of the knowledge that you have and why I think, you know, we can have more conversations. I know we're kind of getting towards the end here today of this this show, but um we're coming up on tick season for a lot. Of, well, tick season, I guess, is all year long for a lot of people. But in our minds, we think about it more because, uh, you know, guys go turkey hunting in the Midwest and they're sitting yeah. there, they got ticks crawling all over them. So now they think, wow, now it's tick season for my dog. But um, what? how do you prevent and how do you recognize if there's an issue that arises from ticks? Um, well, so first off, there's a lot of new... Um, tick medications that the dog will eat. Um, and so when they eat these um, flea and tick preventatives, um, it goes systemically or through their body that will um, basically kill the ticks and, and try to prevent um, you know, them to transfer Lyme disease or whatever type of tick-borne disease that they have. Because ticks, are, they carry a lot of bacterial diseases. That That's the trouble, not the tick itself. It's what they carry. So um, you know, it used to be Frontline and a lot of those other topical products you put on their shoulder blades, and they're all greasy for a couple days. And there's some vets that still like that, but these oral ones I like because it's just a chewable. And then what I tell people too is like, you can go to Tractor Supply or online, and you can get these flea and tick repellent wipes. Um, so basically, when you go out in the field, you give your dog the oral medication that's usually good for one month. Some products are good up to three months. And so if a tick does bite them, it kills them instantly, well, within a couple hours. But also, you know, two, three times a day, just wipe your dog down with these. It's literally like these um, 
like bleach wipes. Well, they're not bleach, but they're like, they come in a container like that where you pull them out and they're wet and you can just basically wipe your dog down. Um, that keeps fleas and ticks off. I find that to work, to work very well. Um, in conjunction with an oral medication because because if you don't do that and you just do the oral medication your dog's running around you're gonna see ticks on them mm-hmm. and they're the only way that's you know you know that they're gonna die or, or not take effect is if they do bite and so if you use the wipes the ticks hopefully won't even want to crawl around on your dog is the, is the idea and so um so yeah I, i'm a i'm a big believer in the the wipes or the sprays for topical use no different than if you put you know mosquito spray on you um, and so they make, they make stuff for dogs and then you do the oral medication and then, then you're set. So, and then every year, if you go into your vet and you say, Hey, you know, I, I hunt in Wisconsin and then we find ticks all the time. Here's my dog, you know, run some blood work that we have, there's blood panels that we can test for Lyme disease and all those tick-borne diseases. Cause if they're positive, yeah, we need to treat with antibiotics and, and address that. And so every year be prepared with the wipes be prepared with an oral supplement or not a supplement, but an oral chew that can prevent it. And then just do the annual blood test with your veterinarian. And that's the best thing you can do. Is there an oral chew that you recommend above any of the others? Yeah. The new one that I like is, uh, it's called Simperica trio. Uh, it's made by a company called Zoetis. Um, the trio part is it covers hookworms, roundworms, heartworm. So those three, uh-huh. and then um, so heartworm is its own category, and then intestinal worms is the other, and then it also covers fleas and ticks, and it's just one chew, so um, it kind of covers everything. Because yeah, uh, which I which oh, I like the heart guard is one that's been pretty well distributed and and recommended for years, and that the one you just mentioned is something I haven't heard. But the heart guard, you recommend that? Uh, not anymore. Um, really, it's kind of arc. Yeah, I think it's kind of archaic. I'm not a big fan of it. You know, it's ivermectin. So, I mean, if you want to treat COVID, go ahead. <laughs> wow. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's ivermectin. It doesn't, it covers heartworm great. Uh, doesn't really cover tapeworms, which you can see from, um, you know, different types of, of well, it's just another worm that I, I think is important to cover. Some Trio doesn't as well, but yeah, HeartGuard, it's, um, if you do hard guard, you have to do an additional flea and tick medication. So that's why I like the Simperica trio because it's one treat. So you're saving yourself money and it's just one chew every month that you know, Hey, if there's fleas or ticks, if they're roundworms or hookworms, which, you know, they can, they can be anywhere. Then if they're heartworm or, uh, and if they're heartworm, yeah, you're, you're covered. So hard guard, I just, I haven't used it for five, six years and I'll probably never go back to it just because I think there's superior products out on the line. Interesting. Well, that's good information. So if somebody has been recommended to by their vet to uh, give their dog heart guard, um, ask about this other product or ask about others then? And is that your recommendation? It is, yep. I think there's better stuff. So. Okay. Well, we're, we're getting low on time. I've got about 50 to 70 questions that I really wanted to get to. <laughs> and uh, my goodness. So we got to do this again. Let's leave with what's one last topic that you think is important for us to discuss right now about our hunting dogs being the springtime season that we're approaching. Uh, I think, I think just uh, conditioning and weight management, make sure that your dog isn't overweight or too much of a couch potato. And that when you go out and you introduce them back into some of the trials or the um, training that they're they're in shape. I mean, it's kind of the the weekend warrior concept where you know your dog doesn't do anything, and then you go out and they they after one day they can barely walk. It's uh, 
kind of like the guys in my area where we go play softball once a week and we try to stretch out a a, a run to first place, and we, <laughs> first base, and we all come up with a torn hammy. Yeah, and so it's kind of one of those things where this time of year you really just want to make sure your dog is still in good shape, has a good body condition score, not too fat, overweight, and don't go out there and just go ham. Hey, make sure you slowly introduce them, especially when they're getting older. Otherwise, you're going to be dealing with a lot of lameness and torn knees and um, uh, soft tissue injuries. And so, keep them in shape. Keep them on a good quality food. Keep them lean. Um, weigh them constantly and just make sure that they're an athlete year-round so you don't have to deal with the, the limping. That's the biggest thing I have trouble with is hunting dogs is that once you get that hunting dog that starts limping, you're just bummed because you just know that that's your, that's your athlete, that's your buddy. And if after, after at the end of every day in the field, if they're limping, it's a pretty empty feeling. So make sure you just, from a puppy on, you keep them in good shape and uh, just ease them into everything just like you would yourself. I think that's very important. That's really good advice. Being at the at Pheasant Fest last weekend, a conversation that happened a lot. I was at the Nutrisource booth. I feed my dog Daisy Nutrisource, and um, a lot of the uh, questions were directed at what food would you recommend switching to now that it's not during the peak of hunting season? And I guess you can tell me if this is wrong, Jay, but <clears throat> my dog is pretty active year-round. I mean, she puts on miles and miles this time of the year, just like she does during the other time of year. So I keep her on the performance blend of food. I don't, I haven't changed it now that she's out of her puppy stage. Um, would you recommend that? Or do you think if it's an off season, cause that's what people said, well, it's the off season. She's not burning or my dog isn't burning the calories. I, should I switch food? What, what's your recommendation? Yeah. So I, um, yeah, and that's a good question. Um, I go a lot by what the dog looks like. Um, and I really, you know, a lot of these hunting dogs, they're not too, um, they're not too hairy to where you actually can see their ribs or, or feel them better. But you, my kind of rule of thumbs, you want to be able to feel the ribs, but not see them. And then you want to see them kind of tucked up in the waist. Um, and so people always say that, you know, I'm going to do low fat food in the off season and high calorie food in the off, uh, during the season, all that stuff. But, you have to remember what do they look like right now? Because if it's if you have a dog that's overweight and it's the um, the uh, the hunting season, like I mean, yeah, I mean they they might benefit from a, a higher energy food because they're going to be ripping through calories. But in the off season, I, I I really go by how they look. And if you're just fighting a dog where you're just like, man, they, I just can't feel the ribs and they just look chunky, and um, then then yeah, I put them on a, a low fat food or low low caloric food. Um, try to get them to that that weight, um, and so um, I personally keep my dog the same year round, just because I find that any fluctuations all the time it really throws off her GI system, and then we're dealing with um, loose stools and different things like that. And so, um, yeah, I, I just kind of I, I stick to a, a solid food, and then if you're gonna change anything, I just recommend changing the amounts rather than the food itself. Um, and then, you know, but on the, on the different side of that, if you have a dog that is <laughs> young and it's a, a big athlete and it just looks skinny all the time and it seems hungry all the time, um, A, make sure it doesn't have any worms and B, yeah, that's a dog right there that needs a more high caloric, high energy food during the hunting season. Um, but really just kind of go by what they look and how they're acting. This is my takeaway on that one. 
Good advice. Jay, I appreciate you taking the time today. I know you've got customers coming, so I'm going to let you get going here. But uh, let's do this again, and I'm going to get into the other 50 questions that I wanted to ask you today. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, listeners enjoyed uh, hearing your perspective, your take. Um, and if you did, uh, send me questions, I guess, and I'll save them because the next time I have Jay on, uh, we'll dig into them. And hopefully we can help everybody be more prepared when they're training with their dog, when they're hunting with their dog, when they're just living life with their dog. Um, Jay, right. uh, good luck with the rest of your shows and the start of another uh, business that or another uh, clinic that you just opened there. And uh, hopefully you get uh, more great help that you can help people like me because we need it. I need a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, my pleasure, Travis. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, just a quick reminder that our... I believe, I believe, I think this week or next week, our last episode will be going on YouTube and then the whole season is up. So if, if there's a show you missed, you can, you can go back and watch that. Just go to YouTube and, and do a search for The Flush or you can go to our website, theflush.tv and all of the episodes are under the 2021 folder of shows and you can go back and watch any of the previous season's shows as well. Um, once again, thank you for everyone that came out to Pheasant Fest. What a blast that was. I'm glad I have my voice. Brandon, I'm glad you made it home safely. And uh, I look forward to, oh, I guess, our next live show, buddy. I can't wait. Yeah, yeah. Uh, next week, we are talking dog training, dog training university. Um, just a heads up, I pre-recorded this one when I was out training with my buddy George Lyle. And... If you've listened to this show, you know that that man has 30 years of dog training experience from some of the best dog trainers in America, and he's been uh, kind enough to share uh, uh, quite a bit of his knowledge in that episode, and it's really geared towards uh, that foundation uh, with puppies, but that applies to every single dog out there, so hopefully you'll enjoy that episode, which will be coming out next week. Um until then, I'm Travis Frank reminding you to take the time to introduce someone new to the field. Thanks for listening.